0: From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's no denying the Sicilian influence on the culture of Louisiana. Between 1880 and 1920, over 4 million Italians immigrated to the U.S., with the majority of Sicilians coming through the port of New Orleans. Their influence here can be found in the food and in the language where special words like misbelief and guguza proliferate. On this week's episode, we're surveying those Sicilian connections to learn new things about this place we call home. First-time novelist Elisa Speranza joins us with tales of the Italian prisoner. Elisa was inspired to write about the prisoners of war housed here in New Orleans during World War II. After Italy switched sides, these former enemies became part of the American war effort and the city's makeup. Then, Liz Williams joins us with memories of her Nana's Creole Italian Table, which is also the name of her latest book, and will fully explore the misbelief and the Gaguzza, along with the delicious ways we eat them here. So get ready to enjoy some serious Sicilian flavor on this week's Louisiana Eats. Did you know that during World War II, there was a large encampment of European prisoners of war housed right here in New Orleans? When Elisa Speranza learned the story of those POWs, she decided their time had come. After three decades in the business world, Elisa directed her creative energies into writing her first novel, a work of historical fiction entitled The Italian Prisoner. Set in New Orleans during the waning years of the war, this coming of age story follows a second generation Sicilian immigrant named Rose as she seeks to chart her own course at a turning point in American history. Elisa takes readers to Rose's family grocery store in the French Quarter, to the city's wartime shipyards, and to Jackson Barracks, a local military base that housed hundreds of Italian prisoners of war. As Elisa explains in her author's note, the Italian prisoner is a blend of truth and imagination, but the events that inspired it are all real, if little known. I asked Elisa, who's not originally from here, though she is Italian, what it is about New Orleans that compelled her to write this novel. I think it's the people. You know, you meet people here
1: who are from all walks of life, And the culture is so rich and so complex, and there's so many layers to it. Um, Not that that's not true in other places, but there's something magical about the way it all comes together here. Uh, And the inspiration for this particular book um, happened to me shortly after I moved here. I've been here since 2002, and shortly after I moved to New Orleans from Boston, uh, I met Chef Joe Feroldi, who uh, he and his wife, Kitsie Adams, used to have K Joe's restaurant in the French Quarter. They now have Lakeview Burgers and Seafoods, um, but Chef Joe and I were backstage in a green room at some event, and he we were talking about growing up Italian, and he said, "Well, my family was a little different. My dad was an Italian prisoner of war, and my mom was a local Sicilian girl." And I said, "Wait, what?" Because I, like a lot of people, had no idea that we had Italian POWs in the United States, let alone in New Orleans during the war. So he elaborated on that and later uh, told me about, you know, growing up in the 50s in the quarter and his dad worked at Circle Foods. And, you know, there was just this rich story. And I thought to myself, somebody should write a book about this. It's just a great story. Um, but I ha- was distracted by, you know, a pesky career all the time until I left full-time corporate employment. I didn't have time to, to really do the research and do the writing. And by then,
0: thank God, no one ha- no one else had written the book. What you have uncovered in the Italian prisoner is a whole new special sect of immigrants under very unusual circumstances. Yeah, it is. it was fascinating to to
1: discover and and go on the treasure hunt that I did. They were actually from all over Italy because they were captured soldiers in 1943 in World War II in North Africa— and brought to the United States as prisoners of war. And a thousand of them eventually were brought to Jackson Barracks in the Lower Ninth Ward and held there for the duration of the war. Um, And because Italy had surrendered in the September of 1943, which I totally had forgotten, now they had these prisoners, but they weren't really a threat to anyone Um, and they wanted them to stay calm until they could figure out, you know, how to repatriate them after the war. So they reached out to the local Sicilian community here in New Orleans to see if they could interact with them and speak Italian to them and bring them food and comfort. Um, And they got some freedoms and went out to work. And all of a sudden, the young women in the Sicilian community in the French Quarter had some handsome new dance partners.
0: Most of their usual dance partners were all fighting the war. Exactly. So, so this um, fresh set of Italian males must have been extremely appealing.
1: Apparently so. And uh, one thing led to another, as you might expect. Um, and a lot of the families ha- would have these men for dinner. They were allowed to go to people's homes for dinner with an escort, a military escort. So uh, a lot of the local families ended up, uh, you know, having these guys as part of their family, literally, after the war.
0: Do you have any idea how many of them went back to Italy and how many of them ended up staying? All of them went back to Italy after December of 1945 because
1: they had to be repatriated per the Geneva Convention. Uh, And many of them came back uh, with their then wives. So what happened was they had met young women here And this happened, by the way, in Boston and New York and other parts of the country where there were also Italian communities. But here in New Orleans, there were at least 10 families that I was able to find that descended from these guys and from the local Sicilian women. So um, what happened was the women had to travel to Italy after the war, get married over there, and then wait for permission to bring them back. To bring their husbands back to America, they needed a sponsor. They needed a job. It was pretty elaborate paperwork involved. But um, a lot of these young women, they had never traveled outside the country, so they're going over to Sicily to see their family for the first time. That you know, they the grandmothers and the aunts and whatnot. There were double
0: weddings happening. Um, it
1: was it became quite the family affair.
0: Did you did you find many people who, in fact, from New Orleans? Were part of this? Yeah, it was great. It was a great treasure hunt,
1: and we found um, 10 of the local families. Uh, There was a family called the Battaglias who had seven sisters, and uh, all of them uh, made friends with some of the prisoners of war, and four of them ended up marrying prisoners of war from Italy. Uh, There were also two sisters, the Messina sisters, who uh, the two of them married two other prisoners of war. Uh, The Battaglias had a cousin, Felicia Diana who also married a prisoner of war. So, the, so these families were, um, were, you know, quite interrelated as it came down to the cousins and the next generation and the grandchildren. And it, it was very uh, gratifying for me and to work with them and tra- track down all these folks and bring them together, which we did a couple times, which is, that was even more fun because some of them didn't know each other in the different families and they would see pictures of their dads and their grandpas and their moms together in, at Jackson Barracks and, and realized that their ancestors had a shared past.
0: Oh, that is so exciting. Tell me what it was like when you brought those people together. It just must have been such a reunion of sorts. It was
1: incredible. And um, John Stefano was our guest of honor, Mr. Mr. Stefano, who was the prisoner of war who was still with us. His family brought him over, and he gave a little talk uh, and told some of his hilarious stories uh, about you know, escaping for the evening to go and take go on a date and various other things that did make their way into the novel, which was too good to be true. Um, and the families were just very touched, I think, to have their stories memorialized um, because they had, you know, reached the American dream coming back to the United States after such a harrowing time in, in their family history and in the, the country's history and the world's history uh, and, and started these beautiful families who are all
0: still in the greater New Orleans area. Well, it's a beautiful book and it's a delicious story. I'd like to see the movie.
1: Oh well, so would I. I hope you. <laughs> I hope so. I, it, there's lots of music. Louis Prima is in the book. There's a lot of dancing. There are nuns. There are you know. There's just it's rich with all kinds of different cultural references, including the Higgins Shipyard where Rose works with her friend Marie, who is one of my favorite characters, also. Um, So there's a lot to love about it, and um, I'm glad you like the book, and I hope other people will
0: enjoy it as well. That was Elisa Speranza, whose debut novel is entitled The Italian Prisoner. To learn more about her research or hear a playlist of songs featured in her book, including this one, visit ElisaMarieSperanza.com. You'll find the link on our website as well. Coming up next, we're joined by Liz Williams, whose real-life experiences in a large Sicilian family inspired her latest book, Nana's Creole Italian Table. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce, step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood, straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com.
2: I'm Liz Williams, and I'm the author of Nana's Creole Italian Table. Cardoon, Mispoli, Calliope,
0: Huckabucks, Second Lines. New Orleans has a lingo all its own, built on generations of immigrants finding their way to the port of New Orleans, the French Quarter, and finally a life in this city. French Spanish, Sicilians, Africans, Caribbean islanders, all trying to make this a place of their own, resulted in the hodgepodge of culture New Orleans is today. Liz Williams, Sicilian grandmother, arrived in the Crescent City in 1910 at the age of 18. Liz's book, Nana's Creole-Italian table explores the New Orleans-style Sicilian culture Nana found here. We sat down with Liz to learn about her Nana and the delicious childhood memories she formed growing up in a large Sicilian family. So your Nana came
2: to New Orleans in 1910. Yes, she was 18. Actually, there's a picture of her in the book There was a practice of having a picture taken before you left so that you could give all of your friends and relatives a picture of you because you knew you would never see them again. And she had that picture herself, which I think is so poignant, the idea that you'll never go back. And um, she she was just the most wonderful person. I don't think that I have a bad memory of her she was tiny she was way under five feet tall and when we were little the whole goal in your life was to be taller than she was (laughs) and even when you were she would deny that you were as tall as she was she was hysterical about that and she meant it you know but in her mind I think what she was saying is you're not as old as I am but we knew that we were taller when we could look down on her
0: Liz, when you were little, her mother, your great-grandmother, was still alive. And she lived in the Treme. Tell me about the memories you have from that time and her house.
2: Well, her house seemed huge to me. Um, My great-grandmother had 11 children. Two died in childhood. But still, that's nine children living in the house. And it was always, always bustling. There was so much going on there. There were two uncles who never married, and they continued to live there. And I remember my Aunt Sarah, who is my mother's next sibling, she and her husband lived there. And they were taking care of my great-grandmother and cooking for the whole household, I guess it really wasn't as big (laughs) as it seemed in my brain, but um, in my memories. There was just a lot of activity because so many people were there. When your nana first married, she just stayed right there with her mom and dad and now her new husband. That's right. That's right. So I think she got married uh, shortly after She came to New Orleans, and he, my grandfather, moved in to the house in Treme, and he lived there until uh, maybe my mother was 18 or 20 years old, so then my mother went with them, but my mother grew up in that house. Wow. And my uncle, who was the youngest of the children, was only about a year and a half older than my mother. So they grew up almost, you know, like brother and sister. And she was the littlest of them all. So she was everybody's little
0: sister. Well, when it came to this big Sicilian family, um, you all were Sicilian inside and out. I thought it was really hilarious the way you described yourself as a walking salad dressing. (laughs) Tell me about all the things your grandmother would do and make you do with olive oil.
2: Well, olive oil was the all-purpose salve. So you, you used it instead of hand lotion. You used it in your hair to make your hair soft. She put it on her face, and she was always using it. And little babies, you know, get cradles cap, and she would pour it on their heads and dissolve the cradles cap. Olive oil everywhere. The other part of the salad dressing was the garlic because you had to have a clove of fresh garlic every day. That was like a vitamin. I loved the story
0: about your Aunt Jerry because once you grew up, and became an attorney, somehow stuffed artichokes became currency for your Aunt Jerry. Explain that to me.
2: Well, I did become the family consigliere because um, I was a lawyer. And so anytime there was any reason to think that they might not understand something, and there was really a, a distinction in the sets of children, these aunts and uncles who were born here and the ones who were born in Sicily. The ones who were born here didn't have the same um, hesitation, but the older ones did. They were worried that they wouldn't understand something. So my Aunt Jerry was one of those, and she always had me read her letters from Social Security. And, um, and of course, you can't take money for that from your relatives. But she felt that you couldn't have a debt. So to stop me from feeling that she owed me, I always got stuffed artichokes or um, <laughs> eggplant parmesan or something like that to take home with me. <laughs>
0: and, of course, Your Uncle Buster and his bread grating box, her husband, he figured very largely in certainly your
2: grandmother's life. That's right. That's right. He was a tinkerer. I mean, he loved to put things together. So he made this wonderful bread grating appliance, which was based on a wooden box with a piece of sheet metal on it. And he just literally took a nail And the whole thing was turned into a grater by nailing through the sheet metal. And then you would grate on it with your bread. And so you moved the bread and um, it fell into the box. And so that's how you grated your bread. And why was that so important? Well, it was important because you didn't waste anything. When bread became too stale to eat, well, then you had to turn it into breadcrumbs. When we stopped, like, making our own breadcrumbs and seasoning them and whatever and start using Progresso everything, everything started to taste the same. And that was really something that my grandmother talked about all the time. Even though Progresso was a Sicilian company in New Orleans, um, she kept saying, if you use that, it won't taste like yours anymore. Because, you know, if you make your own seasoned breadcrumbs, they are going to taste like Progresso seasoned breadcrumbs. And my grandmother, who had the best taste buds in the world, could taste your stuffed artichoke and know you had used Progresso. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a beautiful story. And thank you so
0: much for sharing all of these precious family recipes with us, because This is a book that everybody's going to want to cook out of.
2: Well, thanks very much.
0: That was Liz Williams, author of Nana's Creole Italian Table.
3: Non far la rosa, ma battami qui, o bambola rosa, l'ai riccioli d'oro sei più preziosa di mille
0: tesori. Laura Guccioni is simply a fount of knowledge when it comes to Louisiana history. Her own family hails from Alia, Sicily, where she maintains close relationships with cousins and other family members today. With her background in botany, Laura has long been fascinated by a local fruit tree, often referred to as the Japanese plum, which proliferates wildly on the island of Sicily. We sat down with Laura to discover the fruits of her research.
3: Okay, so... Japanese plums. That's what we called them when I was growing up. They're also called loquats, and a lot of people in New Orleans call them misbeliefs. So I was really interested. I was like, why why misbeliefs? What is this story? Not even realizing that it had something to do with Sicilian heritage the first time I heard it.
0: I think it is such a strange thing that both you and I grew up Having that be part of our foraging childhood, wasn't it? You ate a lot of them, I bet,
3: just like I did. Absolutely. It was definitely part of my childhood, and I have a few stories about it. It is one of the earliest fruits to become ripe in the area, and we had a swimming pool when I was growing up, and that was the sign that it was almost time for swimming and that school would be out was when the uh, Japanese plums would ripen. And they they turn this beautiful
0: sort of golden yellow, and they're sweet. Mm -hmm. But they're so
3: funny to eat because they've got those big, shiny, round pits inside. Yep, very shiny brown seeds that are bigger than the fruit. I I mean, the seed usually – I think there's like – it comes in different amounts. I think up to five seeds in a fruit. And the seeds were part of it for two reasons, because we used to spit the seeds, and those are even more fun to spit than watermelon seeds. So we'd spit them in the grass near the pool. And here's another weird thing. So when we were growing up, I haven't heard about this from anybody else, but my family was a little odd. So my dad was a full-blooded Sicilian, and he used to do this thing where we would, when we'd harvest them, we'd peel them and we'd keep the seeds, put the seeds in like a jar with either vodka or Everclear, and over a few weeks it would turn this brown warm amber color and it would taste like amaretto we used to call it fake amaretto
0: but i mean amaretto
3: is made from fruit seeds also so it makes sense and then finally recently i was like was my family just crazy for drinking that or you know could we have all died i mean i know seeds have poisons in them And I looked it up, and there is a liqueur in Italy called Nespolino. Wow. So this plant has been confusing people since the early days. (laughs) Originally, it was believed to be part of the Mispilis genus, which is meddlers. And I've never seen a meddler. I don't even know if anyone really eats meddlers. What is a meddler? Apparently, it's a fruit that produces in the winter. So that's the good thing about it, because you can have this fruit in the winter. But it has to be rotten before it can be eaten. So in a weird way, I think maybe it's like similar to a persimmon. Uh So originally they were thought to be part of that genus, but like in the 1800s, it was changed to another genus. And I think this is where the confusion starts because the Mispilis genus, people still attached it to this fruit. And then when it changed, the name changed. I don't think people carried that name over. So you've got... Mispillis, then you have the italian name which is nespoli and then the third name which i finally figured out makes the most sense i was like okay so people were saying this fruit is called misbelief and it might have something to do with mispillis or the italian name nespoli but doesn't really this that doesn't really sound like misbelief to no, me that makes any sense so i was thinking those words don't seem like very close to misbelief. I can't believe someone would misunderstand that much, even people from New Orleans. So I looked it up and I started thinking, you know, people who settled in New Orleans were not Italian. They were Sicilian. So luckily, I still have family in Sicily and they still speak Sicilian. So on WhatsApp, I contacted my 80-something-year-old cousin, Rosa, and I sent her a picture of the fruit. And I said, what do you call these? In Sicilian. And she sent me a voicemail that had her voice on it. And the way she said it sounded so close to misbelief. I was like, that's got to be it. Here's a recording of Rosa Guccione
0: pronouncing the word. Now listen closely. (inaudible) Niespule. One more time. (inaudible)
3: Niespule.
0: sounds a lot like misbelief.
3: It really does. And also, I, when I was doing my research, I was trying to figure out because this plant, which only grows in zone eight and above. So, I mean, it's definitely likes our climate. It only grows in like the southeastern United States and western in the western United States because it really likes subtropical or mild climates. So I was thinking, well, you know, there, I guess there is a chance that this plant was here before the Sicilians. But I researched and researched and read up on, I mean, you know, the Jesuits came here and made lists of everything. They saw what they brought, so, and it was not included. And, you know, I just did not find anything until like the late 1880s. Which leads you to believe that maybe
0: the misbelief came from Sicily.
3: Correct. And then the late 1880s also, Amite City— was heavily settled by Sicilians and it was at one time called the Strawberry and Japanese Plum Parish of the state of Louisiana so it actually that was part of its name. Do you think they were sold commercially? I have a feeling they maybe they tried to do that but they're very delicate so that's that seems I don't think it probably really took off I guess strawberries took off. (laughs) <laughs> Why were they called Japanese plums? Because they, they don't have anything to do with Japan. Okay. Yeah. So they're originally from China during the Tang Dynasty. So this is like 600, 700 AD. Some students had brought seeds or the plants, I'm not even sure, to Japan. So they do, apparently they grow in Japan. And I guess maybe that jump, maybe that's the first place other people were getting them from. I'm not sure. But they were called Japanese meddlers and Japanese plums. Oh god. Even though they're not Japanese and they're not plums. <laughs> they're all over Sicily, aren't they? They are all over Sicily, but one thing that's kind of sad is they're really disappearing in New Orleans. I have trouble finding the trees these days. There's a blogger D Hollands I referenced her in my article, and she believes it's because all the gentrifiers are, they don't know what to do with these trees. They're a little messy. They don't eat the fruit, and they just either let the fruit drop, and they don't do anything with them, and then they're cutting down the trees. I don't know if that's really true, but perhaps.
0: Laura, thank you so much for shedding this little light on the misbelief, also known as the Japanese plum.
3: Well, thanks for having me,
0: Poppy. It's always great to see you. Laura Guccione, native New Orleanian and champion of the misbelief. Now that we've solved the mystery of the misbeliefs, what about the kagutsa or the cuckooza? Stay tuned and we'll solve that mystery as well when we come right back. Coffee Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on Louisiana's North Shore. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, Request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. This week's Culinary Quiz Question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is a Gagutza, and how do you grow and cook it? The Kakuza, or Gagutza as some pronounce it, is a summer squash that grows like a weed in South Louisiana, where it's so beloved that every August, there's a Gagutza Festival in Independence, Louisiana. They stuff it, they fry it, they make candy with it at the festival. Spelled C-U-C-U-Z-Z-A, this vigorous squash comes from a vine that can actually grow up to two feet in a single day. The pale green gourd of the caguzza grows up to ten inches every day, but remains a narrow tube as it develops. It's usually harvested when it reaches about two feet in length. Often, it curves into a winding shape as it grows, but most importantly, it's delicious. You can often find it at farmer's markets in late summer and fall. The caguzza is like most squash. It doesn't taste like much on its own, but is a perfect foil for Louisiana seafood like eggplant or melaton. The skin and seeds are removed before cooking, but don't throw those seeds away. You just need a couple of them to propagate a cagutza in your own backyard. Plant the seeds in the early spring at about a one-inch depth in your garden and just wait. When it takes off, that fast-growing squash will give you quite a show. Our friend, Laura Guccione, was served caguzza on her recent trip to Sicily, and she shared her family recipe with us. You'll find it on our website at poppytooker.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and caguzza squash make for some good Louisiana Eats.
4: I'm Sal Impostato, former owner-manager of the Napoleon House in New Orleans.
0: Sal Impostato's entire life was centered around the corner of charters and St. Louis streets in New Orleans' French Quarter. His uncle, Joseph Impostato, bought the property that became the iconic Napoleon House in 1920 creating a family legacy that Sal upheld until he and the remaining family members sold the building and business to Ralph Brennan in 2015. We sat down with Sal to hear his memories of the distinctly Sicilian family business, memories that stretch from early childhood right through the 48 years he personally spent as caretaker of the family's landmark.
4: My earliest memories are um, going there with my father. I can remember, you know, around five years old, my dad taking us to the Napoleon House. At that time, it was a quiet, pretty much residential area. He'd do his business, and I would just hang around. Believe it or not, he raised milk goats in the backyard of our residence on Cassie Leon Street in New Orleans. And um, I remember... He would even bring that goat to the bar, and he would let it eat grass on a small grassy area of the Supreme Court. I think at the time, Uh right across the street. And um, we would always go to Montebano's Deli. It was on St. Philip Street. That space is like imprinted in my my memory. Marble top tables with ice cream chairs, ceramic floor, and. Big deli case behind there with a big scale. He was always weighing something out. Uh-huh. Didn't spend, I don't think we ever ate in the deli. We always picked up something to bring mm-hmm. home. That was a stop. The French market was a stop. Fresh fruit, always. Also, to bocados. Of course. Also, always to ricottos. But that was most of, our, of my uh, recollection of the pumpkin house. My dad did not really want myself or um, the rest of the family, which was my four sisters, he didn't really want us to be around the Napoleon House when it was operating. That was an adult thing. Yes,
0: yeah. it was so, a bar. It was mostly yeah, yeah. a bar. No right. food at that time, right?
4: No, no food, no food. And um, to set some record straight, my dad was very religious. Uh. And what he was doing, running a bar, I have no idea. He should have been. <laughs> he should have been a priest. Oh, well, <laughs> that's so funny. And if you would run into anybody. Who was still alive that knew my dad? They tell you the same thing. He would actually preach to you. <laughs> oh. You know, he would you know don't drink too much. Do this, you do this, do that.
0: A very funny but, kind of a bar owner saying, right. "Don't drink too much." Yeah, yeah. And what did your uncle do? My uncle
4: retired he, himself.
0: He retired himself, but he 50, never went away.
4: No, he. I think he. <laughs> I think I remember him saying he retired himself at fifty years old, and uh, lived upstairs with my aunt um, over 50 years.
0: Did he spend time down in the bar? All the time. Okay, so he retired, uh, but he time. never really went away. Uh, he lived upstairs. Right.
4: And... I'll tell you something about my, my uncle. My uncle um, lived to be 100 years old. Wow. Part of his breakfast was a, a shot of wild turkey, 101, and a glass of orange juice. Uh, everything was always fresh. My aunt was always you know, cooking. Everything from scratch, and on the other side of the patio of the Napoleon house, there was a fig tree. Uh-huh. And uh, my uncle, at 85, I can I can remember walking that wall to go pick figs, walking the top of the wall. Oh my God! To go pick figs, and my aunt was screaming at him, uh, <laughs> "You know, come down, come down from there." Well, he finally he finally he finally stopped that, but um, yeah, at, at 85, he was. Doing still doing pretty good but my dad, like I said he, he ran it to best he could, he didn't really want to be in, in the bar business at one time um, there was talk about him selling it and um, I'm not sure what changed his mind.
0: When was this that he was...
4: He passed away at 60 so this was probably in his 50s sometime oh.
0: so your dad didn't want his children to go into this business, huh?
4: No. Well, how did no, that happen? In, no, in fact, in fact, he sent he sent me away to um, a seminary summer camp for a week. I said, no, 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 no that's not for me. <laughs> so.
0: And your uncle never had any children, your, no, aunt, no, your uncle. No, my never had any children. So you all were the family, really, that there was. Correct. And so... How does the transition happen?
4: Um, Yeah, I was in I was in my last year of Air Force uh, service, and um, my dad took sick. And um, when I got out, uh, I took over on on December tenth, nineteen seventy
0: one. Now, Sal, is that what you wanted to do? Yes. So you grew up thinking, "Mm, "I kind of like it down there."
4: Well, I knew it. I knew the business meant a lot to a lot of people and um my wife cautioned me at the time you know i don't think i don't think it's a good idea that you do this and i said no i said oh, really i said i'm the only one because um, i had another cousin who wanted to take it over and i said oh no 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 i said if anybody takes it over it'll be me so um yeah i was um, i was dedicated to do it
0: and how long was your dad around from the time you took it over
4: he wasn't. He passed he passed away in November.
0: Oh, and so um, it was December. Yeah, he you... passed
4: away in November of seventy
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how I
4: thought maybe he'd be around to kind of guide me, but
0: But Uncle Joe was upstairs, right? Uncle
4: Joe was upstairs, but no, but that's a different story. <laughs> 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 that's a different story. My Uncle Joe was very <laughs> old school. Uh-huh. He... I just told this story to somebody over the weekend. You know, when I started at the Napoleon House, this was my routine. I had to get there a couple of hours early to chip ice because ice came in a 50- or 100-pound block, and you had to ice pick it down to a size. That was my time spent getting it ready. And I, then I'd open it up. And I remember my uncle coming down. And uh, if it was summertime, I had the doors open. I had the fans running. I had to, Lights on, he would come in, and you said that he spent time down in the place. Yes. Yeah. Every day he'd come down, he'd sit down, he'd have his short glass of beer, and he'd say, "Turn the fans and the lights off until you get customers." And I'd say, <laughs> "He said you got to you got to conserve, you know, your money." I said, "Uncle Joe, if I don't look like I'm open, I'm not going to get any customers." And that went on. <laughs> And on, until finally, you know, I uh, just I I, I won out. Yeah, you would see yeah you would see him every day. Uh, he had a favorite table. If you walked in the front door, you could look at a back wall between two arches. There was a space and a small table. It that was, was his table, either there or sitting on the sidewalk with one of the chairs. Um, but there was one. There was one time we. You, you know you know the stairway in Napoleon House.
0: Yes, very well.
4: So it's three flights plus the attic stairway. Well, he, um, he and I used to climb that stairway often. And um, at one time, and I can't remember what year or how old he was, but I think it was somewhere in his 90s, He we, we approached the stairway. And he stops and he grabs my hand. And he said... Uh, Uh, I I made my last trip. You go get it. And that was it. He never, never went back up.
0: Oh, gosh. What a lovely memory. What a special man he was. What do you miss the most?
4: (sighs) Um, I was there 43 years. And uh, the routine I kept up... um, for me, it really wasn't strenuous. Now, sometimes it got really mentally strenuous uh, on, on some occasions, but um, I liked the pace I kept. I liked the people. Uh, you know, as you mature, you you your uh, knowledge expands. Either you're uh, in books or you're taking it in from other sources. And my other sources was all the people around me. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And characters.
4: Correct.
0: Lots you, lots of characters. You had characters working for you, and you had characters as customers. I oh, know.
4: yeah. I always said the only mm-hmm. business that had more characters than we had was Whitney Bank. <laughs> <laughs> they had to change money somehow. exchange <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, Sal, this has been such a treat to... Mm. Share all of these memories with you. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that people know or remember about the Napoleon House and the Impistadas? Um
4: Going back to my my, my uncle, um, and I have to I have to relate back to that because my dad wasn't around that long. Mm-hmm. But uh, my uncle. Um, Pretty much, pretty much guided me through a lot, and uh, you know if it wasn't for him uh, working hard and in the beginning to buy the place, you know none of us, none of us would be here. I uh, and I'm, I know I'm getting emotional, but uh, I do I do regret losing the place, selling selling the place, um, but it was uh, it was necessary at the time, you know. Um, it's taken me a lot of years to, continue, to get over it. I don't, I don't think I fully will, but um, it'll be in my family forever.
0: Sal Impostado of New Orleans' iconic landmark. The Napoleon House. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas, all handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlo. And performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longliné and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladoo. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.